Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this episode. I'm glad you could join me as we get the chance to hear from John Page, who is a leadership expert. Here's an excerpt of the interview with John. The kind of nimble non-profit, and this is probably social enterprise as well, mm-hmm. is, is that they, they are defined by three things, and this is a research-based piece of work, um, obsessive focus on impact. Absolutely sort of monocular, are we making the boat go faster, yes or no? Yes. Not, not that we've got a kind of McKinsey-grade strategic plan and yeah. beautiful set of values on the wall, but absolutely, how do we know we're making the boat go faster? The other one is about partnership, working outside the boundaries, actually working with others to, to make it great, and leveraging, taking our dollar and somehow turning it into four. So those three things, hmm. uh, four, yeah, three things, define, you know, successful organizations in the, in the modern world mm. so so you know it's all about getting outside the boundaries mm. not just saying because we've been here for a hundred years and mm. um, you know we c- we have the right to continue to mm. exist well i know you'll appreciate learning about john's life and all that he's been involved in as well as the insights he has about leadership if you do enjoy this episode then consider checking out some of the dozens of other ones as well because I'm trying to build up a resource of good stories of inspiring people doing amazing things. And it's only through people like you who listen and tell others that it's going to grow and spread. Now let's get into this interview with John. So it's a pleasure to welcome John Page to the interview. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure to be here. Um, On this uh, podcast, what we do is we talk about what people are doing now. But in order to do that, it's really helpful to set the scene by looking back at their lives and trying to trace a little bit about where they're from. And I know earlier this year you came out with a report um, called True to Label. Yep. Um, and I really want to talk about that report and some of the research that you did that went into that. Um, but before we get to that, let's just start with the easy question, um, which is where are you from? Uh, where am I from? So uh, that's probably Hawke's Bay, where I grew up. I was born in Gisborne, but grew up in Hawke's Bay uh, on a piece of quarter acre piece of dirt just on the edge of Napier so mm-hmm. uh, you know with um, uh, yeah, what were my parents that what did they call 10 pound palms that was the name of them wasn't oh, okay. they, you know, the yeah. assisted passage so so what year had they come out was that uh, in the they, 50s yeah, or they came out a couple of times they came out and had a look and then went back and then came back again so 50 Four-ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So sort of post World War Two. Yeah, post World Looking for their place in the world. Yeah, very much. Uh, I think not wanting to live in Britain after that experience. Mm. Both lived through the war. Uh, landed in Gisborne originally, which must have been an interesting place for Londoners to wash up in the fifties, and mm. then and then hunkered down in Hawke's Bay and uh, raised their their family there mm. and. Um, did they yeah. talk much about the war and what they'd been through, or was it kind of a, yeah. something they'd left behind? Or? My father never talked about it. He served. Mm. Uh, he was a lieutenant in the Royal Engineers. He never talked about it. Hmm. My mother talked about the Blitz a bit. She was living in, and working in London at the time, but not a lot. It was something they'd kind of put behind them, and hmm. they were very much, you know, here is a new world, and what they wanted to do, I think, was to give this new family the best chance right. kind of thing, approach. Yeah. And leave behind the horror that they'd, yeah, yeah, they'd yeah, been yeah. through. Yeah, because they both <coughs> both would have remembered the Depression. They were My parents had children quite old, right? so they would have remembered the Depression. And my father may have even remembered the First World War because he was born 1912. Yeah. Ah, so, so he would have been like six years old or something when it ended, so yeah, yeah. probably might, had some Some vague memory, some memories, yeah. yeah. Mm. Hmm. So what what do you think that did in terms of your identity growing up, the the child of immigrants? Was that a, a part of it or? Yeah, no, it was very much. Uh, well, it's certainly a part of a part of it because they had a slightly different cultural framework. Mm. Um, but they also the, this thing about wanting to you know give their children every chance possible. So you know we were allowed to try everything. So we were very active, sport and culturally, and there wasn't kind of much that you couldn't do, that you wanted to do. Um, but the other thing was about you know this idea that you could have a quarter acre piece of dirt and grow everything. 
Right. My father was, you know, this was clearly that was his so- dream. <laughs> well, and he did, you know. I mean, clearly this was something that New World offered. So, uh, on reflection, there was just it was just a garden, really, and mm. we very much um, grew most things. Mm. Uh, of course, as far as children were concerned, this was horrible because we were the harvesters right. and weeders, <laughs> <laughs> ready labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unwilling labor. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Mm. But it was, you know, in that sense, it was a great place to grow up it mm. was pretty free and um you know i mean all the things that people don't do now you could sort of bicycle everywhere and mm. it was pretty free range yeah. mm. and it's a beautiful part of the world it is a beautiful part of the world mm. yeah i mean it's a lo- lo- lovely climate yeah and, and we were just there for a wedding um recently at havoc north actually yeah, but yeah. um just coming in it was so green everywhere yeah. and the mountains you know like few the yeah. ocean it's really beautiful yeah it is and we're actually we're going up there this this weekend to see friends it, it, it is a gorgeous part of the world mm. no doubt mm. Mm. so just describe for the i guess the type of child that you were like what type of things did you enjoy were you into reading or outdoors or oh uh, well i i was um uh, i was definitely into outdoors um i wasn't what i wasn't well, my, my family were very sporty. You know, they were mixed up in tennis and golf and mm. cricket and table tennis. I wasn't very good at any of those things where my siblings were. But um, because my my two slightly younger sis- sisters and I were very close together mm-hmm. in age, we, we were always moved as a group package, you know. So we'll swim. So the three of you will swim. Right. You know, so <laughs> we were kind of, you know, it was one solution it's for three convenient. people. So... so if one was talented and the other two were dragged along unwillingly. So that happened in swimming, uh, table tennis, briefly cricket and other things. So I tried all of those things. But I landed in scouts and, and that was kind of interesting because that allowed you to go off and just wander in the ranges and hmm. do all of those things, uh, you know, with, with, with under circumstances now that health and safety would not permit you to do, to be frank, you know. So, you know, given a map and told to come back in a couple of days and try not right. to lose yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but quite an intro to the outdoors, right? Oh, yeah. And it was very much, you know, uh, if you thought you could do it, you did. Yeah. You know, so it was um, so very practical, a, a very practical childhood. And mm. I landed into golf quite early, which All right. I, I have well, sort of stopped playing, but thinking about going back to. Mm-hmm. And that was a really enjoyed that as a mm. discipline. Mm. And basically, as far as my parents were concerned, that was more or less a good place for someone to be, as opposed to somewhere else. You know? Right. They approved of that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you were wondering about hitting a golf ball and not doing other things that Hawke's Bay boys did, you know. I see. All of that. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and then just take us through, like, um, I guess, high school years and, and what came next. Uh, so, um, so high school, yeah, from high school, uh, I ended up going to university as, you know, uh, yeah, but I wasn't ever a great student, really. Mm. Uh, was that an expectation from your parents, or just uh, it was the thing to do? Or? Sort of. My older brother uh, did that. My, my younger sister did that. Um, yeah, um, there was sort of an expectation. Um, I trained as a teacher, but I was didn't have the patience, so I didn't take that up. Mm. And I bailed out of in university. I got mixed up in in events you know student events and sort of orientation and things like that right and found i had a bit of a taste and talent for that kind of organizing things mm-hmm. sort of from a i guess bring my practical bent to things so that from that i fell into the uh, into the arts in terms of um you know being mixed up firstly on the on the event side of it and then into the marketing side so right came from that kind of events uh Mm, you know, but it was more behind the scenes organizing it rather than yourself on the stage. Oh or? yeah, oh my god, I got no talent at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that. But, uh, you, uh, but it was that was your introduction to the yeah, arts. It was the yeah, because the, there's got to be people behind the stage, right, right, to to yeah, yeah. make sure things are working. So early on, I kind of worked out. I had I had um, some sort of ability to sell things, you know, in terms mm. of framing events and, and, and marketing and this probably came from uh, an ability with language mm-hmm. and words which uh, undoubtedly came from my mother so I worked out that I actually could sell things to people and this was kind of interesting skill so mm-hmm. I remember my first proper job was at, at Court Theatre in Christchurch and 
And I, as a bad stage manager, I wasn't a good stage manager mm. uh, at all. Um, and one day I said, look, I don't think the marketing in this place is any good at all, really. And the next day I was marketing manager. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was quite good at. Uh, yeah. And it was great training ground. Yeah. In those days there was two theatres running, two houses running, and a touring group. So one person marketing 23 shows a year is a very good way to learn your craft. Yeah. Very good way to learn your craft. Yeah. And I quite enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah. So what were some of the key things that you learned well, uh, great. Everything comes from great images in marketing. Mm-hmm. So you've got to sit down and work out what, what it is, and, and um, you know. So, so how does that translate to theatre? Like, what what does it? Uh, in theatre, you've got to have the conversation about what is the what is the essential thing about the show that you want people to learn. I always thought right. in in marketing, uh, in the arts, it was the kind of the test was if you put a billboard beside the motorway entrance mm. and people drove past it and they had that three seconds to look at it, mm-hmm. what is it you want them to take away as an impression? Mm-hmm. And you've got to build that into in, into your thing because you really only get, people will only take one or two things away from a piece of marketing if you're lucky. Right. So, so your discipline is to work out what it is you want to say mm. and, and, and to codify it into the images. Mm. Uh, and that's really hard to do and very few people get it right. Mm. So I kind of learnt, I learnt that and the rest of it was just discipline. Mm. Uh, and about, uh, particularly if you were working um, with, you know, free marketing, so in the media, why would they actually want to talk about you mm. at all? Mm. So what is the story or the bent or the extra bit mm. that, that, you know... And, and Tell that, the story. Yeah. yeah. What, what is this thing that separates your story out from everything else that's sitting on the editor's spike for the day in, yes. in the old days where there was hard copy press releases? Yeah. So trying to drill through that and find out what that story was. And, and you know, that's probably... I kind of ultimately worked out, yeah, probably 20 years later, you know, that I had this skill about distilling information. Right. And, and you know, once you... Getting it to its essence. And yeah, yeah, and that's conveying it. The, the earlier people work that out about what is, what is it that I can do well, hmm. you know? Sometimes you never work it out. <laughs> it, it took me quite a long time, it's to be said, as I stumbled through these various things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the best way to learn, I guess, yeah, is yeah. to try. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the thing with marketing that strikes me is that there's often so much that you want to say, yeah, yeah. but like you say, you've got to boil it yeah. down to yeah. you've got five seconds, you've got three seconds to yeah. make an impression. Because yeah, yeah. too often we try to fit in, well, there's seven bullet points of read all of this. I know, I know. And <laughs> I used to have conversations you know, with, with people who were directing things, you know, and they used to do exactly that. They used to give you all this stuff. And I said, well, mm. that's what is the one thing that you know we need to communicate yeah. about about this? And sometimes it's obvious. I mean, mm. if you're marketing the Nutcracker, that's a no-brainer. That's easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're marketing something people never heard of, then that's much harder. Yeah. Much, much harder. Yeah. 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 It's so true. I yeah. even find it with this podcast. You yeah. know, like, how do I get the message out about a podcast? Yeah. And so I've come up with an, the, the title, Seeds, you know, yeah. and the image of Seeds. Yeah. Like, hopefully it conveys or it at least gets people curious. Like, oh, yeah. what is it? What is it? You know, yeah. So, um, but it's a lot of work to come up with something simple. Yeah. Simple takes time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And actually, it's what people say, you know, Writing a short report is harder than writing a long yeah, report. I, I believe it. Yeah. 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 So just talk us through then, um, was there anything else that you learned, I guess, in the Isaac um, Theatre and... and uh, uh, the Court Theatre. Uh, the Court uh, Theatre, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, uh, I was working there when uh, Elric Cooper was the artistic director. Right. And um, I think Elric's still alive these days. He must be well into his 80s now. And he was a um, you know, brilliant but difficult man. Mm. But he did tell me, learn, I learned a few things from him hmm. about, you know, one thing I learned from Ulrich uh, early on was that professionalism is unrelated to payment. Hmm. It's about a state of mind. Hmm. He said, you can be a professional in the theatre and not earn a penny. It's just how you go about work. Hmm. Hmm. And the other thing was about, he used to insist, as a, you know, every day before rehearsal started, that, that the rehearsal room was cleaned. Again, that was a state of mind thing. Right. So it was some kind of simple things, and, and those things in the theatre uh, and, and later in ballet um, uh, have come down through generations, you know, and they're kind of just mm. inherited behaviours, and they're really, I think, they're really important mm. things to learn. 
Mm. I like that though. I, I particularly like the first one yeah. because so often we get caught up on titles and yeah. what's your position in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, whatever your position is, you're in charge of yourself and yeah. how you act, right? Yeah. Like how you, you, you lead yourself hmm. and whatever title you've got on your business card, you can either, you know, you do it well or you don't, you know, like it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's, a, it's a good principle. Yeah, mm. yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's what you're interested in from in that person is not what's written on the business card probably. Mm-hmm. The quality, yeah. quality, what they do, how they interact with you, how promptly they do it, yeah. you know, how much grief they cause you in the process sometimes, yeah. you know, all of that. Yeah. 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 So you, how long were you involved in in the theatre? Uh, well, I, in that little phase of life, uh, I worked at the court for a couple of years, and then I worked for there was then a city festival, which has now come back, a Christchurch festival. So I was involved in getting that back off the ground in '83. We did a big city festival in '84, and I was, I was a, what was I? I don't know. Talking about business Some cards, title. yeah. yeah I, <laughs> but see, I probably, but I programmed it anyway. Okay. And and um, and that was obviously lots of fun to do to program a big festival like that, uh, and that was uh, very successful, uh, and working across all disciplines, um, and then I went and did, did you know statutory OE for four years after that mm. and did lived in London back where um, I still have two of my siblings are still living back in London so I okay. see, see them from time to time mm-hmm. uh, and did a lot of travelling uh, based out of London around Europe so yep. it was you know, a very good thing to do yeah, yeah. oh that's yeah. good yeah yeah. I spent um, three years in London yeah. and it was London itself is obviously amazing because it's so old you know yeah. you can, there's yeah. a pub that's yeah. been there so for 500 yeah. years or whatever but also just the base to be able to travel yeah. that you well when i was there we, we used to get on a plane and be in barcelona yeah, you yeah. know and then come back yeah. on the sunday night yeah yeah and we, we did lots of you know traveling like that but also at one point we did the kind of you know um the, the van converted van oh, experience right. you yeah. know and and that so, was on our list to do, but uh, we never got around to it. And then we had our first child, and it was like, this isn't going to work anymore, yeah. is it? <laughs> it was great. It was six. Uh, we got How to long did you go around for? Six, we got six months. We got to everywhere oh, from wow. central um, Turkey on one corner, mm-hmm. Helsinki on the other corner, and gosh, and somewhere in Spain on the other corner, and mm. points in between. And what was, year were you doing that? That was 87. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of... Um, Cold War. Yeah, era. so so, so yeah, so we went into the then East Berlin for a day, oh. uh, and we travelled down through. You know, it was then still Yugoslavia, right? And and um, so, what was well, that like? Yugoslavia. Yeah, oh, like yeah. you're there at the end of the. Yeah, the well, Yugoslavia. The, I mean, it's a beautiful country. Yeah. How many countries it is now? And it was uh, fantastic to travel in. Berlin was just interesting to do the whole kind of checkpoint Charlie thing, mm. you know, into the east for the day, mm-hmm. and and we uh, we had extraordinary piece of dumb luck experience for a theatre lover. We were walking around the city for the day. And we saw a poster for the Thrupani Opera, Brecht's uh, Viles Opera, and it was on that night in Brecht's Theatre, the mm. original theatre, and we got in, wow. and we went and saw it, and it was sensational. And then we just managed to curfew back out through checkpoint. Yeah, wow. it was just kind of one. I've never forgotten it. Yeah, and was, yeah. and at the time that you were there, like that day you're describing, like did you have a conception that the wall was going to come down quite soon after? No, well, relatively soon no, after. No, no, no idea. I don't yeah. think that, that 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 pressure was kind of building for it to come down. Hmm. No, it was hmm. just a. It's a really interesting day. It's always interesting to look back yeah. at history, isn't it, yeah, and yeah, wonder yeah. what was really going on behind yeah. the scenes. And yeah. Oh, no, yeah, just, you know, wandering colonials in for a day. Yeah. <laughs> we had no idea. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, so the the six months, like, that's quite a long yeah, trip. Yeah. Um, yeah, were there any other big highlights? I've, I haven't met people who've done a six-month... Was yeah, it a VW van or no, something like No, what we that? did is we bought this old um, Mercedes commercial van. Okay. And we actually... Uh, we were living in a squat in Brixton, and we actually converted it on the street, ah. including welding a new top on and, you know... Right. Being, 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 you know, Kiwis, and actually rebuilt it ourselves, much to the amusement of our neighbours, and then yeah. so headed off in this thing, which <laughs> served us very well. Uh, uh, Turkey was fantastic. 
okay. uh, really wonderful people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just got sort of flagged into a camp here and there. It, that, that it really, really uh, mm-hmm. enjoyed. That was a great experience. Um, yeah. We, we, we got, we island hopped from Greece to Turkey, mm. including hitching a lift on a fishing boat in a two-ton commercial van mm. roped to the deck of a small fishing boat. Wow. Went in, into Turkey through no customs. We, anybody interested that we've landed? Apparently they we're, were here. not. <laughs> apparently they were not. We just sort of drove off. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and thought, well, maybe we were going to, yeah. Oh, we, oh, we, had, oh, we got attempted to be shaken down by Italian customs. I remember we'd bought some carpets in Turkey and they were trying to tell us there was this tax due that we, okay. knew, we knew there wasn't. Right. And we just stood our ground for about four hours and eventually they gave up. Yeah. They were just trying. We'll wait to, for the next people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we wait for some more pliant mugs. Yeah. yeah. No, look, it was a fantastic trip. I enjoyed, really, really enjoyed that. Um, I also did, um, actually just after I landed, a circumnavigation of France by bike. Uh, touring bike, so camping crap on the bike, the whole right. whole wow. thing, three thousand kilometres. Hmm. That was it. Uh, in those days, That's I a good suppose, way to see a country. Yeah, in those days, I had sort of basic conversational French now gone, but um, so it was just a fantastic way to see the country. It mm. was just an amazing trip, yeah, mm. dirt cheap. And, uh, and did you know when it was time to come home to New Zealand? Like, yeah, was, was it I a, did. A, I, I, was I, there yeah. a moment when you thought, yeah. okay, this is it? So uh, I met um, the mother of my first child mm-hmm. there, uh, who was New Zealander, who I actually knew. Mm-hmm. And we decided that it was if, if we were going to have children, we were going to have them in New Zealand mm. and not, not in London because it was too hard. Yeah. It was just simply too hard. Yeah, it's a very big city, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's expensive and, and you know, all of that. And, you know, we were both living in squats. And whilst, you know, that was that was fun and made your money go a lot further. <laughs> all, all, all of that, that wasn't going to be a sound basis for raising children. So we, um, we came back to New Zealand to yeah. have a look at the world. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and mm. I felt I fell back into working in the arts again, mm. where I stayed for some time. Mm. Yeah. And was it the same type of thing you were doing, so or a different I went, type? Of I went to uh, the, the orchestra here in Auckland uh, okay. uh, as the sort of assistant manager and marketing mm. manager, and it was around the time where the Altair Centre opened. Mm. So we had this really exciting new venue to to market into, which, as a marketer, was just you know a gift. Just, yeah, you know, you can leverage to the hilt off that. So I spent I spent some time doing that, mm-hmm. and then we um, decided to go to Wellington. Uh-huh. And I set up a, a, a little organisation called Sounds, which is the sort of uh, organisation that promotes New Zealand classical music, and mm-hmm. um, that's still running and very successfully. And then I went to the ballet company as general manager for six years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that was an interesting. So you've touched nearly every type of art form. So yeah, it's like the, from the, yeah. music and theatre and yeah, I opera have. And, yeah. yeah, well, I've produced opera, uh, small opera. I yeah. haven't. I haven't really worked in the visual arts space, okay. particularly or film, mm-hmm. um, but I'm kind of vaguely familiar with those. So mm. yes, I have. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's great. And um, in terms of, I guess, next steps, or were you at Sport New Zealand? Yeah, or yeah, what was, yeah, yeah. For, um, yeah. So, so how how did you get involved in sports New Zealand? Right, so I did the ballet company thing for six years, and that was really probably the most challenging thing I've ever done. Right. Um, you know, that's a standing major national company with enormous profile and mm-hmm. significant you know challenges. Um, and then I worked uh, in uh, partnership with a, a colleague in, in our own little production artist management company for five years. Mm. So that's you know l- learning how to be you know. How to run on the spot and work out, you know, how to pay the mortgage. Mm-hmm. And I decided mm, that was got too hard. Really, mm. that was really quite hard. Mm. Um, uh, so this opportunity came up inside Sport New Zealand. They were looking for someone who knew the non-profit world, who knew about management capability, and and was prepared to kind of go and consult, essentially, and help. So I rolled over there, and they said, well, "Do you know anything about governance?" And I said, "Oh." Uh, yeah, of course I do. do yeah, yeah. <laughs> good standard Kiwi response. Yeah, and they said, "Well, that's it. How about you set us up a proper governance program?" And um, one of the first things that was there was um, Graham Narkis, who's now my business partner, had written 
this 800 pages I might be being unkind to Graham. I remember it as 800 pages. Right. It was certainly long. It's a tome. <laughs> a tome, which was fantastic and absolutely brilliant. Yes. But it was never going to work as a kind of usable manual. I so, see. So the, <laughs> I struggled with this thing for some time. And eventually, um, actually uh, inspired by a lecture that Graham gave, we came up with this nine steps document, which was hmm. the starting point. And that's in useful around New Zealand still today. Hmm. Uh, and it sort of went from there, and I stayed there for 13 years driving that program uh, and had a pretty free hand and some considerable resource. Mm. So uh, what exactly were you doing there? So I was leading the governance program. So the okay. idea was that the people we put money into, it, right. w- it would land in more fertile ground if their governance capability was lifted. I see. And yeah. there had been a report which had predated the founding of Sport New Zealand, which had identified... Um, Governance in the sport and recreation sector as a major weakness. Got it. Yeah. So they decided that we because would, traditionally, yeah. Well, most charities would maybe not have people who are experienced with board governance yeah. or um, have as many skills. Is that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes, that's true. But even, even I think people who have some experience when they get into a non-profit world, sometimes they kind of struggle mm. about. How do we apply our commercial knowledge I see. in this environment? And I don't think that you know commercial expertise necessarily directly relates to good governance mm-hmm. in the non-profit world mm-hmm. or any world in particular. Sure, uh, there's certainly many commentators who will tell you that you know, um, you know, excellence in, in in commercial enterprise does not necessarily translate into the boardroom mm. without some shift in thinking. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so that took you around the country then, meeting people. Yeah, and lot, you know, like, uh, yeah, I got right around the country, worked directly with lots of organisations. I was heavily involved for five or six of the latter years in, in developing, you know, uh, and, and bringing through women onto boards, which I really enjoyed, and we were mm-hmm. quite successful mm. as that. Uh, and you know, we took it there, and then in the last two or three years, I. We, we developed this governance mark accreditation mm-hmm. program, which has now got quite a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so how, did, how did that work? Uh, so uh, what happened was uh, we've been working sort of probably for about eight or nine years, and we thought, well, we might, maybe we should stop and, and, and actually see if this has made any difference. Mm-hmm. It's always a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, we had a benchmark to go back to. Um, uh, Graham had actually done some work in about 2002-03 with looked at 26 organisations and there was this report about state of governance. So we went back to the 24 that were still standing I see. and had a rather more empirical look. And from that came a number of things that, that boards in the sector, whilst they'd made a lot of improvement, were mm-hmm. not particularly good in these areas. And, and they were planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were understanding what their own job was. Mm. And the other one was this idea that as a part-time very part-time group of people with full-time accountability. We have to work through policy to mm. maintain control. Mm-hmm. So a lack of understanding about what that was and how that worked. So, I see. So we, we came out of that and we built a framework, a simple framework that you could write on one page. Mm-hmm. Enormous amounts of resource around, but here, here it is on one page, guys, you know. Mm. And from that came the idea that, well, maybe we've got to have a sort of evaluation accreditation mm-hmm. process that went with this, which wasn't my idea. Mm. So we worked on that with a whole lot of sort of smart people from inside the sector and mm-hmm. a lot of panels, and we came up with this whole process that mm. quite a thorough process, um, sort of 72 questions, and, and the assessor looks at a whole lot of documentation mm-hmm. and says, you know, it's a development program. You're not there yet. Nobody, nobody's there first time through. Right. So, you know, here is, here is a process mm-hmm. that you need to go through. But it forces people to think about what they're doing and yeah. why they're doing it, right? Yeah. So the, the very act of yeah. going through it raises the level. Yeah, yeah. It's, what are, what I'd, it's, it's a sort of gradual process of shifting gear, is what mm. I'd call it. So you start here, and, and by going through this quietly, you end up behaving differently, mm. doing a different job mm-hmm. at a higher level. Mm. And I think most now there's about forty organisations travelling through this now. Mm. Wow! Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, the yeah. second point that you mentioned, um, people not being sure what they're there to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just expand on that a little bit so because I think is, that's really curious to me, and yeah, I agree with I, you. I agree with it. 
um, because I see it a lot helping charities and people huh. coming on as trustees yeah. and and they're not really sure what the boundaries are between governance and management. Yeah. And so just but from your what it, what were you learning? Or yeah, what so did you mean? The, I mean, that's a really good question. It's one that I, you know, if, if, if I'm working with a board on a day like today was a yeah. lovely Auckland sunny day, I kind of say, well, why are you here as opposed to out there? Mm-hmm. So the question for them is what value are you adding as a group of people to this organization? Mm-hmm. Uh, and have you discussed that as a group? And have you got a documented and understood uh, concept of your value-adding role separate from management. Mm. And many of them do not, you know, or it might be written down, but they're not living it. Mm. So, so it assumes you have a role mm. uh, and that you have separate work that you measure your own performance against and you are adding value as a group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the best ways to think about this is, is, is governance as a subset of ownership. So in a commercial board, you're clearly representing the investors. Uh, so in a non-profit board, who is this ownership that you're mm. acting? Who's your stakeholder? Yeah. yeah. Who, who are you acting on behalf of mm. and, and, or, and who are you attempting to generate benefit for? Mm-hmm. So, so if you manage to kind of get that in your head, then you will be able to separate yourself out from management mm. to a certain extent and then work out what the connection between the two should be I see. and what that should look like. Yeah. yeah, And what voice you should have when you come to the board and yeah. and who you're representing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, yeah, and, and so you are, I mean, you're legally obliged to have the interests of the organisation at heart, mm. obviously, mm. on behalf of the owners. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's great. So it sounds like it was quite a diverse role then, meeting lots of people yeah, and yeah. helping them. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. It was a great, it was a great role because, I mean, I got to meet lots of people. I mean, there's some very smart and talented people sitting in sport and recreation boards and mm. being able to work directly with them, yeah. you know. And, and it wasn't, uh, what I did was un- unconnected to whether the organisation gave them money or not. So, you know, it mm. wasn't John Page with the government checkbook. It was right. people who wanted, wanted to get better. They actually wanted to improve. For yeah. the right reasons. And, you know, I had some discretionary money to help, which was great. So it was a really good role. I really enjoyed it. That's kind of why I stayed there for so long. And mm-hmm. then time came to move on yeah. Yeah. yeah but i think one of your final acts was to produce this report right yeah, yeah. so um can you just describe the genesis of that and then so, take us through what were some of the key things yeah. you found because so one of the, th- the reasons that this came about is i was uh, sort of having a you know as you as you do some days you're sitting there being a bit grumpy about things and mm. i was being a bit grumpy about people you know coming in the door with their hands out for more money right without <laughs> without, without telling me what they'd done with the last lot so I sat down and I spent a day and I got 24 organisations and I did a balance sheet analysis, right? And then mm. I went back 10 years, mm. went forward and I looked at balance sheet movements, revenue movements and a few key ratios and things mm. and, and I adjusted it all for CPI. And, and what I was able to prove that on average these organisations over 10 years had had 60-odd percent growth in real terms in revenue. Right. And you kind of think, okay, so that's great. You've been highly successful. Mm. Well, what have you done with it? And and if you can't tell me that, why mm. are you back at the door? Mm. So asking so, for more. Yeah. yeah. So I circulated that to a few people. It wasn't a popular piece of analysis, as <laughs> you can imagine, but it did sort of sit in my mind for some time about this question about how can we tell what people have done with the money, you mm. know? And if we can't tell what people have done with the money, why are they asking for more? Mm-hmm. So I'd got to the point, Sport New Zealand, I thought, well, I kind of need a break, intellectual break. Mm-hmm. And, and so I persuaded them to do that I could do this work. Yeah. So I got some proper research people to help me frame it, you know, and to sit on my shoulder and make sure, you know, research Muppet that I was, that I wasn't doing this, you know, too loose mm-hmm. and got a nice reference panel together and talked to a lot of people. Yeah. And, and essentially they gave me time over summer to do this work a couple of days off a week. You know, as long as you don't drop the ball on your own job, mm. it's a sort of time off. Sort of, sort of. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, but do this. Other yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know and that. Yeah. So I, I selected 55 organisations across four sectors, sport okay. and recreation, arts, culture, heritage, social services, disabilities, conservation, environment, across a range of sizes, you know, right. two to five million, five to ten, ten, ten plus. And I said, this is an uh, examination of publicly available information. So annual reports, strategic plans. Right. Can I find them, you know, online or by asking nicely or mm-hmm. by writing, mm-hmm. which is what I did. And uh, then I uh, and 
most of the annual reports are there, 90%. But interestingly, only about 50% of them were able to produce strategic plans for me mm. in the non-profit sector. I see. Okay. Mm. Well, that's kind of interesting. So, mm. so off the available information I had, I then went through a process of analysis, which was mm. simply asking the question, is it clear why they exist, what, what they're trying to do, mm. how they're reporting against it, mm. um, you know, what, what sorts of measurements, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, um, and it was kind of a bit of a, it was a rabbit hole exercise. So the first thing I did, even before I did this, is I'd read. So people kept giving me books and context. So mm -hmm. I needed to establish a context. So I read a lot of books and a lot of sort of contemporary things, which is where, you know, the whole social enterprise thing caught mm. my eye thinking about. This is, an, this is one of the reasons this is important because the world is changing. Mm -hmm. And there are these new, well, they're not new forms, social enterprise, yeah. but, they, but they, they have suddenly got a kind of heightened presence. You know, the Sally Army shop is a social enterprise, mm. arguably, and that's mm. been there for a long time. Mm. Uh, and I think that was how we first connected, wasn't it? Yeah, Because yeah. I think we, re or you yeah. reached out to me or yeah. however mm. it happened, but we had some email exchanges yeah. about social enterprise. Yeah, yeah, I was, I'd yeah. found some of your articles and I was kind of interested. So, yeah. so that, be, that, that kind of became part of the report about one, one of the reasons it's important is the world is changing. Yes. And, and the, the, the um, sort of difference between, you know, the, the full profit world and the full value world that might have been black and white 20 years ago or even less is now very grey. Mm. So you've got to be able to chart your way clearly in the in, in the in the middle of it, mm -hmm. um, and and you know the other sort of thing that really strongly came out of this is if you haven't got this clarity, it is impossible to have a governance function because you've got no mm. framework for making judgment or making decisions or mm. deciding where resource goes or being accountable to your owners and your stakeholders. Uh, so if you haven't got that, at best you are what's called spectators to management activity. That's all you can be. Maybe risk management, you know, which is valid, but but that's a very limited role for a board to have. It's it's what we call you know a purely fiduciary role. Don't mess up. Mm. It's not particularly strategic. Mm. Without the plan for the future, which is what the str the strategy yeah. involves, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, people will say, okay, we are, you know, not wishing to bag orchestras, but an orchestra, we're going to put some concerts on. Mm. That's great, and we want people to come. That's great, but but that's not, uh, you know, beyond that. You think, okay, well, is this the best way to get people in to hear music? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? You know, and and is this investment the best way of of driving our mission as opposed to this. So this is this the whole kind of layer of, of where we allocate resource and why. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you've got to have an orchestra, it's got to have X number of players, that's a given. But beyond that, you've got some discretionary decisions. So, mm. so, so without that, it's very hard to have a serious governance conversation. And the other one is simply an ethical one that, that you standing, and you know, um, that, uh, if you've read, um, is it Mark Moore, the public value theorist, right? Mm. So he has this thing about uh, non-profit organisations being self-commissioned as a public value. Standing in the marketplace, saying mm -hmm. we're going to do some good, mm -hmm. give us some money, we'll do some good. Well, then you, you've got to tell people what good you've done. Right, you know? Yeah. some so, accountability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, and, and, and um, you know, so you've got to tell people what you've done with it. Preferably tell them ahead of time what you intend to do with it, so you, mm. you've got some some, some measurement. Mm. And and I think you know it's a crowded space, as you know, in the non-profit world. I think there's mm. something like ninety odd cancer-related charities in New Zealand, thirty-five of them dedicated to breast cancer in a country five million people. That's probably too many. Mm. You know, so there's a bit of a need for clarity and storytelling in here. Mm. Mm. And it can, it, some of the things that you're saying, in a way, it comes back to your very first jobs where you were kind of discovering the power of marketing. Yeah, yeah. Which is you've got to distill the story down to some yeah, key messages yeah, that yeah. get across quickly. Well, I'm a big fan of storytelling, and I... I um, do read a bit around it, and, mm -hmm. and um, we are um, a storytelling species. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been reading um, some Yuval Noah Harari, the uh, mm. Israeli mm, pop, pop academic, is a little bit unkind, but he's certainly a populist academic. And right. he, in his book Humanity, he talks about this thing that um, 
you know, we are a storytelling species. This mm. is what separates us out from other species, our ability to create and hold abstract concepts in our head. Mm. Money, mm. you know, law, these are abstract concepts. So, so this idea that we have to tell a story with clarity and simplicity about what, what we're trying to do, mm-hmm. uh, I think in this world is absolutely vital. Mm. You know, it, 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 um, just standing there and saying, well, you know, and I used to beg my colleagues about, you know, I think people we've moved past the world where sport is good, more sport is gooder, you know. Mm-hmm. We've grown as a nation past that. We've now got to say why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know, people are starting to clearly understand that mm. too. Yeah, I notice it with this podcast because this podcast is basically telling stories, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think people resonate when they yeah. hear someone's personal story. Yeah. Like if we just started the interview and I said, "Tell me about the report," yeah, it dull. wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it, it's there's you know it, it's statistics and it's I interviewed yeah, yeah. fifty and twenty five had yeah. strategic yeah, reports yeah, yeah. and others in it. But if we find out, oh, okay, yeah. you went around six months in Europe in a van, you know, yeah, like it just yeah. adds color. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what people are needing to do more is to yeah. convey it and including with sports teams or or individuals is you know what's the story here well, that's, why is that's it, a why should i why should i care <laughs> yeah yeah well you know and it, well it cuts both ways of course because you know i mean we see it playing out on politics now where people are not interested in facts and interested in stories you can't yeah you can't uh, you can't really run for office on facts yeah you know you, you you've got to have a compelling story well, if you look at the, yeah, like Obama was great at telling yeah. stories, yeah. wasn't he? He, yeah, yeah. he? The speeches that he gave, it was, yeah. you you know, you're, wow, that's such a great yeah. story. And yeah. this, I met this lady and she said this and her yeah. son and da, da, yeah. da. Like, that's what people want to connect with. You yeah. Know, they, you, know, they, you can't give them up there a chapter and verse, you know, on the economics of healthcare. It's, you mm. know, no, that's right. Yeah. So I think this non nonprofits have got to find what what is the story? You know, mm. what's this compelling reason? I remember um, there was a guy who was president of a large national sports body, and he used to contend that at every annual meeting should start with a winding up motion. He was a lawyer, right. so you can you know you know the argue away <laughs> from me if you can kind of position. But to a certain extent, he was right. If if you can't articulate uh, why you shouldn't wound up, mm. you have not thought about it carefully enough. Mm. And, and if you can't explain it to other people, you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. Now, I, don't think, I think there's a, quite a lot of truth in, in that. Mm-hmm. You know, you need, and, and that comes to the board. Every board member should be able to tell that story mm-hmm. externally with absolute clarity. Otherwise, they haven't done their job, in my mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a person who's studied many charities mm. and, and looked at whether they're telling their story well or not, and also having told stories for many, yeah. many decades yeah, now. Yeah. Um, what, what's your, because some people listening will be in a charity and they're probably thinking, we actually could tell our story better. Yeah. What would be some of your practical tips or advice for them? Like, well, how, how, would, how yeah. would you go about it? Well, I think, I mean, you, I mean it's, a, it's a sequential thing. I mean, I, and I approach these things very logically. So the first thing is, you know, why do we exist? What is the nature of the change that we're trying to make in the world? Mm-hmm. Presumably you are. That's why you exist. Mm. So and some and, and there's a story around that, you know. And some of those stories are great. I mean, I, I when I was doing this research, there was a couple of days that I spent reading the annual reports in the social services sector, and a lot of it was about child poverty. And that was a very sobering couple of days. Mm. And the grapes they were very strong stories. Mm. It's a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. But then they've got to come down to. Um, what is it that we can be accountable for as an organization? Mm. So if you're working into the area of child poverty, no one organization mm. is going to cure that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then this is a New Zealand Inc. problem. Yeah. But somewhere you've got to say, our contribution is going to be this, mm. and we believe that will make a difference because research tells us that's right, mm. or it's a pilot and we're going to test it. So, but we will be accountable for that thing. Mm-hmm. And say it in, in advance. And then you know uh, if your activity is being successful or not because you've set yourself a benchmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't do that, then then you, then you run the risk of being busy. Now, the sector is full of passionate people, no doubt about that. Mm. Many of them are genuinely under-resourced. Uh, but a lot of them are busy, mm. but they can't answer the efficacy question. Mm. 
And the counterviolent to that is often, what are the things that you're doing now that maybe you should stop doing? Right. And how do you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, because often... It's one of the hardest things, isn't it? Because someone uh, will have a great idea and you want to yeah. encourage it, but yeah. actually the best thing is sometimes, no, let's well, not do it. Yeah. I mean, there's any number of famous people who've said the primary pur- purpose of a strategic plan is clarity on what to say no to. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs and others have all said that. And I think that's true because gives you this kind of you mentioned the word true north earlier and, mm. and I love the true north concept, you know. Mm, true, yeah. You know, we, yeah. this is, this looks like it's maybe eighty degrees east and I'm not sure that that's right for us. You know. Yeah. Just keep bringing How it does back. it fit in? Keep well I see it a lot with charities because I help draft the trust yeah, deeds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you ask the client, what's your purpose? Oh. And it sounds pretty basic. Like you'd expect that they'd be able yeah. to just rattle it off yeah, yeah. or um, send you an email right yeah. away here's our three bullet points yeah, yeah but usually and sometimes faster but usually it takes quite a lot of time yeah. to actually get them because then i help to craft it into a you know a charitable framing yeah. of what they're doing yeah. um and but it's surprising how you know what what are you doing what what is your purpose you know, it's, people struggle with this and they struggle with the language and and yeah. uh, in, in our work, uh, I wish I'd come up with this, but I haven't. We challenge people with the um, look at your purpose from the way of organization X, Y, and Z exists so that mm. and complete the sentence. Right. Because that forces them to externalize the benefit. Mm. We exist to make this change outside the building, not to be leaders or advocates or you know, which is all about what we're going to do mm-hmm. rather than the change we're going to make. Yeah. And people get very confused between the two things. Mm-hmm. So it is, what is the nature of the change you're trying to make in the world? Yeah. First place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that's really good. And I, I love that emphasis on telling the stories. Yeah. Um, just before interviewing you, um, Julie Chapman from Kids Can all right. was here. So I interviewed her and we were talking about statistics about yeah. child poverty, which was obviously... Uh, you know, a huge issue, children not going to school with shoes and things. And then I asked her, what's a personal story here? And she told this story of a, a little girl who'd gone with no shoes and then she was given shoes. And, mm. and it, all of a sudden the statistics kind of melted away yeah. into a real life example, Yeah, uh, which just shows the power of it, right? Yeah, so. yeah. And that, that's all good. Because the, the challenge there is, of course, I'm ultimately... Um, you know, I read quite a lot about this. You know, that, that's uh, addressing symptoms, which is valid mm. and a necessary thing to do. But the, there was a quote that I put in the research, which was a Des, Desmond Tutu quote. At some point, we've got to get up the river and find out why these people are falling in. Right. And that's the hard bit, eh? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. because my, many charities, if they were truly successful and they'd fulfilled their mission, they would cease to exist. Yes. Well, that's what we ended up talking about, yeah. actually, yeah. is what's success for you. Yeah. Success is that yeah. we wind up the charity because yeah. we don't need it anymore. Yeah. That would be an <laughs> and idea. The, and the problem is that many charities have been going for 100 and more years yeah. because there's still the... Well, the what issue. they do is they become service delivery agents. And yeah. you know this, this whole thing about being you know contracting mm. to government. And what I, what I actually saw, particularly in the UK, was some of those larger agencies which have a kind of mission, um, if they achieved it, they would wind up, mm. separated out the service delivery arm into a separate organisation yeah. and retreated back into the advocacy politics arm. Right. Because what they, what they needed to do was to focus back on, actually, we are trying to make fundamental change here, mm. which is hard, probably unpopular, mm. and really you know means we've got to have to really focus. Mm. And we... we that's different from this, which is should be short-term yeah. and it's largely service delivery. Which comes back to the strategy and what you're saying yeah. no to, right? Yeah, so yeah. you've got a government contract of a million dollars to provide this X, yeah. Y, Z, yeah. and therefore management time, everybody's yeah. busy fulfilling yeah. the contract, yeah. not actually But if we, were, if we were truly successful in a core purpose, that contract wouldn't be... Yes. Wouldn't be necessary. Yeah. Well, if we made some change, they might only have to spend half a million because we've made some positive change yeah. somewhere. So let me ask you a question, since yeah. you've obviously read a lot on this. To, to, is there a danger that um, it's a, it becomes about self-preservation of a job or or a, yeah. or a, or a organization that continues? Because if we did wind it up, yeah. what would I do? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think that's true. I think every organisation should go through that reflection mm. process from time to time, either winding up or is there somebody who's better at doing this than yeah. us? Yeah. Uh, or should we be in partnership with some somebody else? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, because it's not, it's not about the organisation, it's about the benefit mm. that accrues to the people we exist to serve mm. and they're two very separate things so yeah. so it is something that they should reflect on I think on a regular basis yeah. you know um, what, so what we know now about um, the kind of nimble non-profit and this is probably social enterprise as well mm-hmm. is, is that they, they are defined by three things and this is a research based piece of work um, obsessive focus on impact absolutely sort of monocular are we making the boat go faster, yes or no? Yes. Not, not that we've got a kind of McKinsey-grade strategic plan and yeah. a beautiful set of values on the wall, but absolutely, how do we know we're making the boat go faster? The other one is about partnership, working outside the boundaries, actually working with others to, to make it great, and leveraging, taking our dollar and somehow turning it for... So those three things, hmm. uh, for, yeah, three things, define, you know, successful organizations in the in the modern world mm. so so you know it's all about getting outside the boundaries mm. not just saying because we've been here for a hundred years and mm. um, you know we c- we have the right to continue to exist mm. and what you've just said that applies to for-profit organizations as well doesn't it absolutely you know impact yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. partnerships and well, one, one, all. yeah one of the things it's actually in the um you know the the thing that JB Weir does about mm-hmm. the, the, the cause report, I think it's called, yeah, yeah. had a little section about rates of innovation where they observed the rates of innovation in, in the American Fortune 500 companies where, where because they are, you know, exposed to the market, mm. there's this enormous churn. Uh, and if you're not, you know, innovating and, and you, you don't stay at the top, any, and the rate of innovation and change in the non-profit world is much slower much 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 slower mm-hmm. and the average age of organizations is, is a lot is a lot longer yeah because a lot of them are, have you know secure long-term contracts so so they are not innovating at the rate that they should be yeah yeah it's fascinating because it does come back sometimes as well to getting in a silo yeah, yeah. and just talking to the people you talked to last week and yeah. the months before and that's not where innovation is going to come is it it's going to yeah. come when you're out talking to an environmental yeah. social scientist about your sports charity, you know, yeah. like that, that you're going to cross fertilize. Well, and, so. and, and, and there's no doubt that they are, you know, good people trying to do good things. It's not, it's not in question, but the, yeah. there's a little sort of mantra in governance, which is about, you know, the right benefits for the right people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the right worth, you know, understanding the right worth means you've got to have some analysis about how much is this costing us to deliver against mm. somebody else or an industry benchmark or something mm. and i don't see that so much the right worth mm. calculation anywhere about we've made sure that this is the best way of using the money mm-hmm. uh, i think that's a real gap in people's thinking mm. you know yeah. uh, whereas you know in the commercial world that's live and present the whole time and it's you know and often that's just in the marketplace if you know that's the, the cup of coffee analogy which I put in the report, you go into a cafe in Christchurch and you get your long black and it's $3 and it's good and it's a nice warm cafe, it's got newspapers and a nice ambience, well, you'll go back there again. But if it's, you know, $4.50 and it's not mm. so great and yeah, it's lukewarm, but a bit, <laughs> bit, bit, bit of a dull spot, you know, that's a direct linear relationship. Yeah, You don't see that in the non-profit world because the, the, the sources of the resource and the recipient and the benefit are often uh, one or two steps removed. So that you know, invisible hand of the market, if you happen to believe in that, mm. uh, is not there so much. Mm. Um, so there's got to replace it with some other kind of analysis. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Well, what we'll do is put a link to the report Thank in, yeah. in the um, yeah. show notes. Yeah, yeah. Because um, people can find it and, yep. and read it themselves. Yeah. Can you just describe a little bit about what you're doing now since you've moved on from that role yeah. and, and how you found that transition and, and yeah, yeah, who you're talking to these days? So I'm now a consulting partner with Boardworks International and, and um, I've done a lot of work with my business partners when I was at Sport New Zealand, you know, Graham Narkis and Terry Kilmister, and they sort of eventually said, well, you know, ankle tap me a bit. So you've been here long enough, won't you? you know. Yep. So now I'm doing, um, uh, I do a lot of work in, in um, board um, board evaluations. I do a lot of teaching, mm-hmm. uh, strategic work, um, 
just been doing some work today about starting a program about building diversity mm-hmm. in a particular sector. Um, so yeah, a whole range of things across there. It's um, it's exciting. I'm having to learn again, you know, which is mm-hmm. great, new, a, a new challenge. But I'm really enjoying it. It's you know, as you, as you know, um, when you're working in this uh, environment, clients are only interested in your A game. So mm-hmm. you know, it, keep, it keeps you very awake. Yep. Um, so I'm enjoying the change, another change, another slight shift in, in the career. bit more planned, this one, than all the previous ones, I have right. to say. <laughs> probably the first one that's been semi-planned in any, any kind of conceivable way. Uh, so well, that, that's good. But it feels like you're able to bring your, your experience, yeah. you know, of yeah. all the different organizations yeah. that you've worked yeah. with. Like, there's yeah. always been a governance function, yeah. particularly at Sport New Zealand, yeah. that that was your focus so yeah, it's yeah. It, you and, know and this whole, it's logical uh, yeah yeah this whole I- storytelling idea and yeah. synthesizing information and getting to what's really important because mm-hmm. I mean, what what research tells us is that boards boards can focus on about three or four things at any one time of mm-hmm. any consequence okay yeah um, not lists of 100 so mm-hmm. you kind of get to what is what is it that's really important in your world and and you need to really spend some time on as a board doing your job mm-hmm. and we we kind of help people get to those things right uh, which yeah. comes back ultimately to that simplicity right yeah and, yeah. and what what are, yeah. what are you what are you doing <laughs> yeah what are, what are you doing yeah. here yeah that's right why are, why are you here well, yeah, particularly for volunteer boards you know why, yeah. why are you giving your time yeah you know? even but even even pay boards i mean we don't have a lot of boards in new zealand that are well paid i mean most yeah. boards are, are volunteer or, or mod- modestly paid so people mm. are Either either discounting the time or give or giving giving their time. So yeah. there needs to be a reason they're sitting in the room. Yeah. 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 So just thinking about boards, just to kind of finish off, but thinking about boards themselves, like you've dealt with many of them. Yeah. Are there because people listening, many of them will be on boards. Yeah. They'll be trustees or they'll be, yeah. you know, on directors or whatever. Are there any, you know, tips or tricks or things that you think make a good person? Who's on a governance board? Uh, a, a good person. Well, so, yeah, just yeah. So, so it's really interesting. Um, so, so it's a very different role mm. if you've never been on a board. So, um, well, it's a lovely little quote I came across the other day about you know, um, often people have have gained success in their life by knowing the right answers to things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you have clients coming to you, Stephen. They want mm. the right answer, don't they? Mm-hmm. But that's not a useful skill at the board table. The the skill is knowing the right question. Right. So it's a side, you know. So so you're there, you're there to find, um, to delve into issues, to unpack problems, mm. to to yes, to offer some you know advice to management. But but ultimately you you you're there to um, your job is to create a prosperous future. Mm. So how how do you guide the organisation to that? And that's a very mm. inquiring, open, strategic approach. It's a thinking job, mm. you know, and just spending your time observing things that have already happened means you have no influence on the future. So say to boards, you know, how much of your time are you spending on things that have not yet happened? I see. Because those are the only ones you can influence. Mm. Yes, you've got to have risk management, health and safety, and keep yourself off the front page and not go broke, and they're important things to do. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, yours is about creating a prosperous future. So just check that you are mm. going through those. And what, what lies in the road? What are the big challenges? What are the lumps? What do we need to overcome? Mm. And do that in a structured way. So, mm. No, I like that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. very often we do get too focused on the immediate past yeah, yeah. and reflecting on yeah. how did this go or how did how yeah. did the last year go yeah. rather than thinking strategically yeah, yeah, about yeah. the future, which is yeah. the message that's come through clear, for me yeah. anyway, throughout yeah. our conversation is, you know, thinking forward-looking that's rather right. than... So you know, so if I was allowed one consultant's matrix, it's the important, urgent one that you may, right. may have seen. You need to get yourself into the um, important but not urgent quadrant. Yes, as much as possible. Mm. Yeah, mm. and then because that's which is that self-reflection and reflecting about yeah, the organisation yeah. and asking the right question, yep. right? And changes <laughs> in the environment and you know. All of that. So if you bog down into the you know important and urgent, yes. you're in crisis, ma- crisis management. 
preferably not not in the unimportant but not urgent quadrant is yeah yeah yeah. oh that's great well if people want to reach out to you and find out more how would they go about doing that Uh, website and yeah boardworks international you know do a search and you'll find us and find me find me there yeah yeah great um, well what we'll do is put a link in the show notes as well to boardworks and then um yeah people can connect and find out more i guess there's resources and things that you've got on the website and yeah, information information about what, what we do what yeah we and do. there's some, yeah. some there's quite a quite a good list of um the old um good governance articles which terry and graham have written over the years which mm-hmm. are really great great reading and, and non-profits i always say look go to the you know go to the sport new zealand website because there's just mm. so much that the government's paid for that people do not need to pay for again right and that's um, i can give you that link as well yeah that'd yeah, be yeah. great yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well we'll put them in so people are listening they basically if they scroll down yeah, they hopefully can, yeah, <laughs> they'll be able to find yeah, in the yeah. show notes a little description about our conversation yeah. and then they can yeah. click to find more so uh-huh. yeah great well thank you john for thank your you. time it's been great. i yeah, really yeah, appreciate it yeah, yeah 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 no it's good and it's just good to reflect i love the the sort of the the story of your life (laughs) and the fact that through the decades you know you've kind of been looking at governance and telling stories and being clear and and i think people are listening that's sort of probably the message that will come away because and that resonates with whatever you're doing whether you're in paid employment or working or not for profit it's it's relevant to anybody isn't it i think i mean the attention span in the modern world is lamentably short and the clearer Mm. and crisper you are Mm. you know i think you're going to prosper yeah, 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 great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, I hope you appreciated that interview with John. I know for me, there were many standouts, including some of those leadership principles that he talked about, of how to make sure that boards are actually effective and stay on the right course. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider leaving a rating or review for it in Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and consider telling a friend about it. And this is now the 90th episode, so you might want to check out some of the other ones in the back catalog as well, because there's a huge variety of people who I've interviewed for Seeds. Until next time.